When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Jimena Ledgard and today I have an interview I'm quite excited about. I'm joined by Margaret Grevowitz to talk about her latest book, Rescue Me on Dogs and Their Humans. The book is a challenging and insightful discussion of the long-standing and complex relationship we humans have with dogs, but also of the role of this relationship in late capitalism. Margaret draws on ideas from feminist geography, philosophy, and sociology to explore topics from dog adoption to the increasingly media-saturated world we live in. As a fellow dog lover, I was challenged and fascinated by the ideas she discusses in her book, and hope you will too. I leave you now with our recent conversation. your book Rescue Me on Dogs and Their Humans and I found myself just very perplexed and challenged by what you wrote. Uh, full disclaimer, I think this interview is, is coming at a funny time for me because I I already have a dog, a border collie mix that I found roaming on the streets and adopted a few years ago. But yesterday I was walking my dog and I, I came across another dog, a stray and it's now living in my house. I have a new dog. So it felt very serendipitous to do this podcast today after adopting a stray just like a few hours ago. Um, Congratulations. You're living the dream. I think a lot of people have this fantasy, right? I mean, there's, I see this on social media. There's a real need for this kind of, um, for this fantasy to play out, that there will be a, a like a sweet street dog that just sort, sort of wanders into your life and then you can be the benevolent, you know, rescuer. I certainly dream of it. I'm like, someone give me a pit bull, please. Yes, <laughs> yes. And it's it's funny because I've, I've always had two dogs. I always believe that a dog should have a dog. <laughs> like you need to get yes. your dog a dog. And this was the first time in many years that I've only had one dog. And I had been thinking, you know, for a while, I, I need to get him a dog, but I, I didn't want to adopt. Like I didn't want to find a dog on a on a website and adopt him. I I kept thinking it's I'm gonna be walking around the street and it's just gonna come and it's gonna need to be rescued and I'm gonna be there. I'm gonna be you know the 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 one that was meant to come across him. So and and reading your books, I kept thinking, what does this say? about me and my desires and my wants, right? Mm-hmm. As you say in the, in the introduction, and this is, it's, it's mostly writing about 
an obsession, right? A, a dog obsession. And I'm going to quote you here because you say, I've decided to embrace my obsession and speak from the perspective of the closer hoarder, the one who wants to, too much, loves too hard, and probably does it wrong despite her best intentions. And it's very clear that you're writing from what you call at some point a mood. Like there's something ineffable about writing and thinking about dogs. It transcends our, our usual logic language. But the book is also a critique of late capitalism. And it seems to me that it's a plea to see and allow the ways in which dogs could potentially show us a way out. And I hope I, I got that right. I was hoping perhaps you could uh, talk a bit about how the book came to be and when you started writing it and what motivated you. It's a, it's a very good question, actually, how this book came to be. It just started to feel urgent at a certain moment in my life. Hmm. And I noticed that I couldn't stop thinking about how to this question of how to think about life with dogs. And I also noticed that there wasn't a whole lot of like great literature on this. There were wonderful memoirs, many of them quite, you know, feminist in orientation. There were wonderful books by women about life with dogs. Um, but I think trying, trying to find the book that was going to get me to a, a different way of thinking, right, and get me into a kind of more philosophical space about the dog and human dog life and the kind of irreducibility of human dog life, that unit <laughs> that humans and dogs make up together, it was, it was hard to find. There was, of course, Donna Haraway's famous fantastic provocation, When Species Meet, But I think uh, fewer people took up that provocation than took up Haraway's uh, provocation about the cyborg, mm. right? So we have all this literature that comes out of the cyborg manifesto, but a, a much more modest, I think, response to her work on dogs. So I wanted to, to start making a dent there, and I wanted to start filling that hole and sort of point to a need to fill that hole. Mm. And then, and then when I started writing, <laughs> I noticed that there was sort of like no good starting point. And it really bothered me. I mean, I, I struggled with this in a way that I kind of haven't struggled with other projects. Usually by the time I know I'm writing something, I sort of know how I'm going to get into it. And, and it kind of shows itself to me. Mm. And the dog question did not show itself to me. The more I got into it, the murkier it became. And the more... I found myself indulging these strange compulsions, like looking at Pet Finder for hours. You know, I'm, I'm saying this to you as if it were some like dirty secret, right? <laughs> Because it felt that way. You know, my partner would come in and he'd be like, you know, we're not getting another dog, right? You know, we can't do that right now. So why are you still shopping? In, in quotes, of course. And it was this thing I couldn't stop. And, and I found that the more I the more I, I got into this kind of psychic space of the love of dogs, the more it really overtook me. So then I started thinking, how does one write from that? Mm. Right? How does one write from a space where one knows that one is not stable? <laughs> yeah. Right? One is not in any kind of authorial space at this point. Right? Um, something else is happening. So... I wanted to to start exploring that uh, as a mood. I had a little bit of help. I had I had discovered the work of Colin Diane, 
who actually introduced me to this notion of, of mood and setting a mood and, and why that's actually a legitimate place to start. And her, her work on dogs is terrific. I spoke to a good friend of mine, Kelly, who told me, just write about what's happening to you. <laughs> and I was like, no, we don't do that. I don't do that. You know, and she's like, well, it doesn't seem to me like you have a choice, dude. <laughs> like, go do it. So I had a little bit of help in this. And yeah, and I think for me, this book is really just the beginning of trying to create a kind of auto-theoretical space around multi-species dog life, life with dogs. For me, your work was very, maybe not in the in the subject, but in the in the mood. It was very reminiscent of the work of um, some feminist geographers, for example, right? Where there's there's a lot of a uh, recognition of the body, the feelings, the personal experience, just like the the multiplicity of feelings and sensorial experiences and the, the, the memories and desires as a legitimate place to write from and to think about issues like capitalism, productivity, right? Right. right. And also, I think what's, what's great about feminist geography is that they're quite aware that the things they are writing about are sort of exemplary case studies, right? Mm -hmm. Exemplary moments or like places, and I'm saying places, you know, broadly speaking, from which to think late capitalism. That's what the dog question is for me. It's the dog question, but it's not the dog question. It's actually the question of how to live at this moment when the environmental crisis is also the social crisis. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's a point I keep trying to underscore in all my work. And it seems like quite an obvious point, but it but it doesn't seem to be taking on. <laughs> we keep, you know, I work in higher education and we keep separating out the environmental question, right, from the other questions, from the other civilizational questions in order to get some kind of purchase on it. I understand that. Right. How do we get how do we get purchase on a crisis? Right. On a crisis that it's already, quote unquote, too late to address. Yeah, it's already too late. It's already too big. It's already, you know, the disaster has already come. Right. So how do we get purchase on it? We end up kind of isolating the question. Um, whereas what I think feminist, well, that's what we do in higher ed anyway, um, like in terms of curricular design and um, hiring and all of that. We keep talking about interdisciplinarity and yet we keep holding on to the safety of the old institutional structures. I think, whereas, you know, uh, something that that makes geography so fascinating as a discipline, actually, and the the reason that disciplines like geography are actually at the forefront of these conversations about the Anthropocene and about capitalism is because they've hacked this problem. Mm -hmm. They are able to take a kind of civilizational tiny bit like a piece <laughs> yeah. in all of its layered complexity and and try to create you know conceptual infrastructure that shows that, that lets it kind of sing as a case study right sing as a as the case of late capitalism like this is where we can get some purchase on it yeah. so that's how i wanted to think about dog life i mean there was i would talk about dogs to philosophers And which is my home discipline, by the way. And I, would, <laughs> and I would notice that the questions were the wrong ones. Like these were just not the questions I wanted to ask. Like someone said, well, if you're going to write a book about dogs, then you have to spend a long time explaining why dogs are different than other animals. And I'm like, what? No, 
<laughs> this is not, if I have to write that book, then that's a whole other book. Like this isn't what I want to be doing at all, right? Because the experience of dog life is actually completely different once you're in it. And we noticed this with the great adoption. This is what the great adoption was this manic expression of, mm-hmm. right? That COVID period ended up being this manic expression of finding ourselves in in life, in love with dogs. Yeah. It just happened. <laughs> so I love this kind of, you know, in medias race kind of thing that happened. Like we woke up with dogs, mm. right? Mm. I woke up and here I was in dog life. And that I think is a phenomenon that, that deserves its own study. Yeah. And so, so there, I think it's, it is really good to look to these new disciplines that understand themselves you know, completely interdisciplinarily at this point to help us think through these kinds of phenomena because the old, the the existing category of ethics is not the framework for thinking about this. I think it's it's really interesting what you say about uh, we we just, we woke up in, in dog life and I know it's always very, I know it's always very controversial to try to suggest that parallelism between motherhood and dog life, right? But when I talk to friends who are mothers, they often say those first months with your baby, when if you have the luxury of being able to stay at home or, you know, friends who had babies during the pandemic, they always talk about being reminded of a a human self in, in their own selves that has nothing to do with the way in which their humanity was constrained throughout their lives, right? And I think that during the pandemic, for people that were living with dogs, and I experienced this, we were in lockdown. A lot of us lost our jobs, sources of income. We couldn't go out. And my relationship with my dog changed a lot because it also changed how I felt about my own humanity. Um, It seemed to me that for a few months, I was from just one moment to the other thrown into this dog life and dog way of existing and being that I was not familiar with. And that I think caused a seismic change in a lot of people that now, as you write, kind of like the work-life balance and the system is trying to tame again and to bring back to the old ways that can be quantifiable and measured as productive or not. I thought that was a very poignant point throughout your book. And I was also hoping that perhaps you could talk a bit about something that you write, I think, in the in the first chapter, that is that you argue that following the concept posed by science writer Linda Stone, dogs could be considered essential self-technology. Right. And <laughs> yes. the embodiment of dogs. And when I was visiting your book yesterday, I was at some point I was laying on the floor with my dog, just, you know, staring at his eyes. <laughs> of course, <laughs> like one does. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I realized that those moments for me feel, you know, my entire life feels so media saturated. And those moments are the only ones that that don't. Even things like where I used to find a respite from that saturation and from that quantification, like doing yoga every day, 
Mm-hmm. Now I do it in front of a screen from an yeah. app. Mm-hmm. I have my my Fitbit, so I even if I don't want to, I get to see how many calories I burned, etc. Yep. But being with my dog is free of that, right? Well, it's free of that right now. Yeah. But I promise you, your friend late capitalism <laughs> will come and make sure that there are Fitbits to somehow quantify the amount of time that you spend looking into your dog's eyes yeah. and how it brings down your blood pressure and how it brings down your dog's heart rate. The moment that these forces, I don't know what to call them, these <laughs> these late capitalist forces figure out that there is money to be made around the measurement of these immeasurable things, of course they're going to co-opt them. I think it's perfect that you bring up children, actually. Not children, but whatever this thing is, this this like strange blob that is that experience of being with and sort of losing one's boundaries with mm. a child. Yes. And thanks to a child. I think all of that is, is, is totally appropriate uh, to bring up here in various ways. I mean, I think as you were talking, I was I had many thoughts. So I think in COVID, when when the lockdown happened, we found ourselves not just sort of thrown into life with dogs, but thrown into life with ourselves in ways that we had completely forgotten how to do or maybe never knew how to do, Hmm. right? Suddenly there was this new temporality. Suddenly there was this, you had to kind of figure out how to be and and so many people made this discovery that they liked it. which is something, you know, no one predicted. In fact, what was predicted was the opposite. It was predicted that we would all die of lo- of COVID, first of all, but also of loneliness, you know, lack of media, of lack of being able to go out to restaurants and spend money and make money and spend more money and make more. I mean, what would we do without that, right? And suddenly all these people were saying, you know, I, I like my life like this. I don't want to go back. I don't want it to change. And so I think something very real happened there that we haven't begun to really contend with. That is a a key to thinking about things like having children, right? Being with children, being with dogs, caretaking, what care actually is, what reciprocity actually is, and how it it breaks down the sort of subject-object distinction that we are so used to thinking about life in terms of and thinking about, you know, our individual individuality and experience and freedom and think and thought itself. We're used to thinking in, in sort of individualistic bounded terms about phenomena that we are learning can no longer be framed that way. So COVID was that lesson, and I think it was I think it was very much the reason that we keep eliding between parenthood and pet parenthood mm-hmm. in ways that really piss people off. I mean, there's a whole war on TikTok about how my dog is better than your child, right? Yeah. I mean, it's and it's a joke, but it's also not a joke. There's this, you know, child-free movement, and all those a lot of those child-free statements are by women. Not all of them, right? But many of them are by women and many of them involve dogs. I don't need a child because I've got a dog and I love my life. What that does on the level of rhetorics and publics, right? On the large scale mass level, that's what interests me. The Mm -hmm. fact that we keep returning to this, the fact that the Pope, you know, Pope Francis, when Pope Francis was telling us to, to go back to having children and that somehow it wasn't enough to say, hey, 
humans, you need to go back to having children. The birth rates are falling. It had to be go back to having children and stop talking about your dogs and cats. Yeah. Yeah. If the Pope notices a problem, (laughs) then we're really talking about, you know, we're really talking about some kind of large scale, as you put it, seismic shift, not just on the personal level, but on the level of like large scale affect. Yeah. Large scale desire. Yeah. And I think that bringing up uh, the, the the child care moment is absolutely appropriate here. Mm-hmm. When, when you talk about the, the concept of the pack, right, and you talk about how this concept has been so pervasive in dog world and in popular culture, even though it's been discredited for such yes. a long time. And I mean, I think for a lot of dog owners, it was intuitive, even at the, at the height of, of the pack concept height. Yes. Uh, for a lot of us, it was intuitively clear that that was not what was happening in our life with dogs, right? We were not fighting for the alpha role. We, mm-hmm. were, we were coexisting as complex individuals n- needing and requiring different forms of interaction at different times, right? It was not a, right. a structure uh, that had to be adhered otherwise risking the the collapse of the order in the pack. Right. And I think that trying to think beyond the pack also gives us new ways to think of ourselves in relation, not just to our dogs, but to the world around us and care and family. Because you also write about how dogs have been made to be kind of like the, the final piece in the perfect heteronormative, mm-hmm. creatively mobile, middle-class right. life. But that there is a different way to think about it and to feel about it. And it, it made me think about this essay, and I, I can't remember the author, unfortunately. It was about being an auntie to the world. Mm. And it talked about rather than thinking of the world as a child, which is a possessive relationship. It's, it's a traditionally possessive relationship. Think about it as being an auntie to the world, which is it's not your child, yet you care for it. And right. and I was wondering how you think rethinking our relationship with dogs can also help us rethink our relationship to the concept of family and to the concept of caring for a dying planet. Right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and caring for a planet that is is suffering, and that because of the suffer that we've, we've inflicted on the planet, is also making us suffer and will continue to make us suffer in in ways that we can't even foresee. So I was wondering, you know, how writing the book and how thinking about dogs maybe also changed and influenced that. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't know, right? <laughs> yeah. um, I I actually don't. I don't know what, what other models there are out there, right? I love this auntie idea because it gives us a model. I'm not sure I know what the model is mm. at this stage. What I wanted to show was that dog owner culture was this very fraught space for those questions. Mm. In other words, that's where we can be sitting around and talking about the environment or we can be talking about you know social life or family or whatever, but where it's actually playing out, <laughs> the front on which these 
questions and, and, and answers and trends and kind of like this, this battle for the narrative, right, where it's actually playing out is things as simple as how we talk about training our dogs. Yeah. Or, or when we say that life with dogs is a healthier life than life without dogs, what is the healthy right? How, what are the terms in which we frame the healthy? Those end up being these fascinating, weird projection sites hmm. where our desire for a better social life, which is the same thing I maintain as our desire for a healthy planet. And how could it be otherwise when that social life that we dream of that was once uncompromised took place on a healthy planet, right? It took place on a planet that was uncompromised. And it was actually part of life writ large, life in the biological sense, right? And life in the social sense. There was no, there's a reason we always imagine this golden age of man in like a natural paradise. I mean, there's something about that that's not wrong. So for me, that's, I mean, there's a lot in what you said. I want to go back a little bit to the very beginning when you said, when you were talking about how owners always knew that the pack wasn't, that a strict pack structure was not what was going on, right? Owners always, just by virtue of experience, knew that something different was happening. That's true, but you can see the rise of pack language. I mean, when you start just collecting books about training, which I started do, I started looking at, you know, books from the 60s about how to train your dog. And you see uh, a real shift more and more recently, like into the 80s, something else happens. And then in the 2000s, something else happens. And we keep going further and further into this pack fantasy. So, you know, I don't know, let's say the 50s, when the dog was already very much at the heart of a certain fantasy of a successful middle class, upwardly mobile family, suburban American life, right? This, by the way, and this coincides with, I think, from what I understand, this coincides with the declaration that the pit bull is the ideal family dog. We finally created the ideal family dog, right? The nanny dog. The nanny dog, absolutely, right? So that moment, in that moment, you're still looking at training. Training was at that time kind of like a, a side hustle. Like you want Fido to be able to bring dad his slippers Mm. and the newspaper. And it's kind of a funny moment in the montage of the show that you watch where there's a dog bringing the slippers. It's, it's really, it's all sort of in the margins. Mm. Whereas right now there is an absolute obsession with what training is able to do. When I ask this question, what do we want from dogs? I could have written a book. In fact, I'm thinking about doing it. What do we want from training? Because man, is that a projection space? This idea that there's this highly tappable, bottomless thing that we could be engaged with, engaged in with our dogs, that then sort of holds the secret to life, the universe, and everything, <laughs> right? So it's this extension of a kind of human power. It's almost like dogs the trainability of dogs points to a kind of superhumanity points to, to like, I can just have this extension of my body. That is my dog. Right. And, and I think there, there's also another subset of a kind of like dog trainer influencers that I, the algorithm keeps showing me. Me too. Um, whenever I, whenever I, I go into an Instagram or TikTok, which is the, um, it's, it's, it's like a very specific subset, which is the, 
slightly socially awkward young woman, yeah, um, kind of like very conventionally uh, pretty, right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, yet shy, introspective, etc. And the magical bond that she creates with her dog, and, and there's there's a bunch of them, right? And 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 the, the dogs know all kinds of tricks, and it doesn't. When you watch that, it doesn't feel like this is such a well-trained dog. It feels like, just feels like a fantasy, right? It feels like they tapped into some secret that allowed them to be perfectly in sync with their dog. And mm-hmm. it's usually, they, they never give their dogs vocal cues, right? It's always very subtle movements that they make and that their dogs mimic. And I watch them and I can see myself just fulfilling this fantasy of you know it's not even that the dog as as a super dog and the, the trainer is a super trainer it's the fantasy of transcending your your own human constrictions and you know being in perfect harmony with a non-human <clears throat> being yeah and that just is very comforting in this moment in time and you have a border collie you said right it's a border collie mix, yes. <laughs> so that's its own specific. See, you've got you. That's why you would. <laughs> you're speaking from from that experience, right? Yeah. Which is also a very unique and a very unique like insta social media space. The border collie. I mean, the board. They are they are among the super dogs, yeah. right? And everyone and I have says, many dogs, and I have to say, it's a very unique dog in that sense. They're very in tuned to what their humans are doing. Right, yeah. exactly. So you're already infected with <laughs> with the intimacy, right? And so you watch those videos. And so what's speaking there to you, I would imagine, is this like hyper intimacy yeah. of the training moment because you're already in it because you stare at your, into your dog's eyes and your border collie mix has already infected you with many, many thousands of years, millions of years of human canine coevolution that that was able to produce something as extraordinary as the Border Collie. I watch Border Collie trials and I watch what, I don't even know, are those people even giving verbal commands? They're not. I, I don't give my dog verbal commands. No. And we, we, we have like 80 different tricks that we've yeah. and, and it just feels it feels very moving I don't know how to explain it I've had many dogs and it's a very unique experience yeah yeah I really think that training is the space to watch as we're as we're you know trying to study culture I think dog training is absolutely the space to watch it is and one of the reasons it's the space to watch is because it is so satisfying yeah. Because you can actually do it, right? One can do it to whatever degree of success. It doesn't really matter. It's never nothing. Like you will always get something out of it. So it's kind of like this perfect event where you're going to get something and it's so rife with possibility, right? It's so it's such a promise. You know, the, the point I try to make in my book is to me, I think it, it's the promise that social order is possible at all. And the reason I made such a big deal out of this is because when I was I was writing, you know, about the what's the problem with the pack structure, everyone was like, well, the problem with the pack structure is that humans try to be the alpha. But as you say, I don't think most owners did. <laughs> I don't think they did. And yet I think they still very much held on to and we continue in various ways to kind of try to tap into this pack logic because it's the only logic that's been given to us it's like the only logic that's available for thinking about what's happening and the truth is like 
And that's also because we're getting more and more interested in wild canids on the popular level. Again, back to the 50s where Fido was bringing dad his slippers. I don't think dad was like reading articles about wolves unless dad was like a wolf scientist. This wouldn't have been in the kind of in the public parlance, right, to talk about wolves and coyotes and what's happening with wild dogs globally and wild dog sanctuaries. This is a new phenomenon. So the more dogs we adopt, the more we become interested in the history of domestication, the story, right, of domestication. How did that actually play out? Yeah. We really want a lot out of that story. <laughs> it's a, it's like this space of like high intensity desire. We want that story to give us a lot of stuff about us, about dogs, about the healthy planet, about healthy social life, about what it was like back then. And then we've got these little creatures living in our houses. <laughs> and every single article that you read now about dog psychology points you back to wild dog psychology. Points you back to the, the the body of the wild dog, the habitat, the hunting habits, the social structures of the wild dog. So we're, like I said, despite the, the discrediting of, of the pack narrative, it just doesn't matter. We're still, we're going to really need a kind of new paradigm for thinking about wild dogs. As long as we don't have a new paradigm for thinking about wild dogs, we're going to keep tying our domestic dog logics back to what we know of wild dogs, what we know of wild canids. I shouldn't say wild dogs, wild canids. I don't know, because from what I understand, it's Canis lupus familiaris and Canis lupus, which is the wolf, are not distinct species. (laughs) Interestingly enough, I don't know if I'm just going to sidetrack for a moment, but I don't know if you've seen this experiment in Russia that has been going on for decades. With Um, the foxes. With the foxes. Yes, of course I have. And they're easier to to domesticate than wolves. They've been trying to do this for generations with wolves, and and they can't. They can't reproduce a dog, yet they can create a new domestic fox. Right, like in like two generations or something, in like right? Two like, generations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then again, I don't know about Fox's social structures. So I wonder if perhaps that also played a part in it mm-hmm. too. Because mm-hmm. foxes I think are more they're lonelier individuals. I yeah, think. they have little families, yeah. Because Just so like they're they have like little families rather than prop than packs proper. Than packs, right? right? And I think that as you mentioned in your book, we mistakenly thought that packs are hierarchical right when they're not and there's a lot of collaboration as well in the pack and our relationship with dogs initially when you talk about working dogs and the idea of working dogs the dog wasn't having to work for its food in a way that is happening now in which you put the food inside a conk toy and wait for your dog to tire itself out but it was it was cooperating. It was hunting together. It was working together, and it was reforming a new pack. Even with all the criticism that we we can sure, sure. Uh, you know pose to the pack concept, it was kind of like reshaping a new pack in a way, which never happened with foxes, and which probably makes this whole idea of uh, tiring your dog through toys meant to uh, make getting food harder seem very fraud. And also very cruel as well, because it's it's kind of like renouncing the idea of cooperating and living together and just turning your dog into something in your house that you have to tire down so it doesn't 
destroy it, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's what's what all of this gear that's meant to make your dog work for its food in a way that has nothing to do with you mm. is really bizarre because all of the working for food <laughs> from what we know about that early domestication story this is how this is how wild canids became domesticated right mm. that they had to work for their work quote unquote they they hunted with people right yeah. people hunted with them what they did from what we know today and all and this story keeps changing so it might be a new story in two years, I don't know. But from what we know today, what dogs brought from the pack is they brought this exquisite sensitivity to what humans actually want. Mm. To the point where, you know, I, I actually like to think about the fact that my dogs know what I want more than I do. Right. Right. And they're built to be that way. They are built to know what you want when you don't know what you want, when you're walking around going, what do I want? Why am I so freaked out all the time? <laughs> why am I having an anxiety attack, right? The dog is into, I mean, that's why they make such fantastic companions for anyone experiencing, you know, any kind of emotional disturbance, mental illness, post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, this this is the whole concept of the service dog. So what dogs brought from from their own, you know, ba background, their own experience as pack animals is they brought a kind of exquisite attention to how humans functioned, right? So it's not that humans and dogs created a new pack. It's more that there is this kind of pack technology <laughs> that this psychological technology of the pack, right? That dogs brought to the hunt that humans were able to benefit from so exquisitely without even knowing. And that is, that's the, that's the domestication story as we know it right now. Thank you, Margaret. It's been, it's been a fantastic conversation and I, I, I really, I truly loved your book and I think it's, it's going to be a book that I'll be revisiting soon too. And I'm Thank very you, much Margaret. looking forward to your next project. Well, I'm very impressed with you for, for taking home a stray dog when you already have a dog. That's, that's no small thing, right? That's no small thing. I'm, I'll be thinking of you guys, all three of you, <laughs> together. Thank you. I'm uh, very excited, though, though nervous. I woke up in the middle of the night asking myself, what have I done? <laughs> Absolutely. And I'm sure that's just the first time. <laughs> Not the last.